from 729 B.C. until 609 B.C., a period of 120 years, there existed one superpower among the nations. The Assyrian Empire ruled the world. For the first time in the history of civilization, one nation had the might and the ambition and the administrative prowess to reduce the kingdoms of the world to a single empire with an Assyrian in charge. The Assyrian shadow covered all of Mesopotamia, the ports of Phoenicia, the trade routes out of Damascus, the hills of Samaria, all lay under the sway of Assyria. Damascus was conquered by the Assyrians in 732 B.C. Israel, the northern kingdom, and its capital of Samaria fell to them in 722 B.C. King Hezekiah of Judah and the Hebrew prophet Isaiah were next to face Assyria's troops. They did so just outside the walls of the holy city of Jerusalem. Though God never condoned Assyria's ruthlessness, and though He hated her idols, God still used Assyria as a tool of judgment. Assyria was a rod in God's hand. But here's a principle that we all should learn, we all should know. Just because God uses you, it doesn't mean that He's pleased with your motives or that He approves of your methods. Take a sick saint who might stumble into a church service seeking God's healing while a pompous pastor prances across the stage employing his gimmicks and grabbing the spotlight and pretending to be anointed. Oh, God will hear the heart of that humble believing saint. No doubt about it. He even might use that prideful, greedy preacher to convey his help. But that doesn't mean that the preacher is off the hook for his attitude and for his actions. Again, the principle, just because God uses you, it doesn't mean that you're exempt from the Bible's rules and standards. Think of it when a nurse removes the sutures from a womb. She opens up a sterile package containing some scissors and some tweezers. They're her tools. Yet once they do their job, she chunks them, doesn't she? She doesn't have a sentimental attachment to those tools. I mean, they fulfilled their purpose. And likewise, just because you're God's tool, that doesn't mean that He won't sit you on the shelf once He uses you. You see, God can use anybody. He can speak through the jawbone of a donkey. He can use the jawbone of a donkey just like He did Balaam. God can use anybody for a season, even folks that He will eventually judge, like cutthroat, bloodthirsty Assyrians. Here's what happens in tonight's chapters. God uses the Assyrian troops to judge Damascus and Samaria, but then He turns around and He judges Assyria. And this is the needed lesson for us. The tools that do the work of God are still subject to the will of God. Everyone involved in God's service should take heed. Well, chapter 10 finishes the judgments on Israel begun in chapter 9. Woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees, who write misfortune, which they have prescribed to rob the needy of justice and to take what is right from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey and that they may rob the fatherless. I've heard it said, 
There's one commonality between Democrats and Republicans. You know what it is? They both want your money. Isaiah speaks of the leaders of his day. Woe to those who write unrighteous laws and deny justice and rob the needy. He says in verse 3, What will you do in the day of punishment and in the desolation which shall come from afar? And this desolation from afar is a warning to Israel of this rising Assyrian threat. He says, To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your glory? Without me, they shall bow down among the prisoners, and they shall fall among the slain. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Now remember, God is angry with Israel. The Assyrians were God's instrument of judgment, but his people refused to submit to God's will. In fact, they tried to broker a peace. They even tried to buy the help of Egypt. They refused to humble themselves and submit to God, submit to the dealings that God had for them. God was going to deal harshly with them because of their sin, but Israel refused to admit it. Again, just because God will use the Assyrians to judge Judah, it doesn't mean that Assyria will be exempt from His judgment, for He says in verse 5, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. This is some fascinating language. Understand, Assyria was one of the most brutal, barbaric, violent armies to ever roam the earth. Listen to the Haley's Bible Handbook. It describes Assyria's tactics. Most nations were robber nations. The Assyrians were worst of all. They built their state on the loot of others. They practiced cruelty. They skinned prisoners alive or cut off their hands, feet, noses, or ears. They put out their eyes and pulled out their tongues and made mounds of human skulls, all to inspire terror. The Syrians sound like ISIS today, don't they? They used barbarism to scare the nations into submission. And yet notice, God calls Assyria, and I quote, the rod of my anger. Isn't that amazing? Apparently, their violence reflected how upset God had become over the people's sin, His indignation. To me, this is a great mystery. Violence, evil, was never God's will. But once man brought it into the world, God wasn't afraid to use it for His purposes. God uses evil without condoning or acquitting its perpetrators. In fact, often what man meant for evil, God turns into good. In the end, Satan serves as God's stooge, or as Martin Luther once called him, God's ape. The ultimate example of what happens, uh, of God using evil for good, is what happens at the end of the age. For another ruler, called the Antichrist, will rise to oppose all that's good and godly. And yet God will use this Antichrist to exact judgment on this wicked world. It's interesting that Isaiah and other Old Testament prophets refer to the Antichrist as, and I quote, the Assyrian. The last world-governing empire is named after the first. Remember, there are parts of Isaiah that have both immediate and future fulfillments. Some passages speak of Assyria's kings. Others speak of the Assyrian, the Antichrist. Some passages speak of both. 
Speaking of the Antichrist, it reminds me of a new bartender that came to town. His predecessor warned him before he left, if you ever hear that Big John's a coming, you need to run for your life. One day, a cowhand, he rushed into the saloon screaming, Big John's a coming! Big John's a coming! He knocked a bartender over trying to escape. When the barkeep got back up to his feet, the biggest, burliest man you've ever seen in your life rode into the saloon on the back of a buffalo. He had a rattlesnake as a whip. He knocked over tables. He slammed his fist down on the counter. He barked to the bartender. He said, give me a sarsaparilla. The barkeep, he slid the bottle over to him. The guy took it. He broke off the cap with his teeth. Guzzled it in a single gulp, smashed a bottle on his forehead, and then he started out the door. The bartender said, wait a minute, don't you want another drink? The guy said, oh no. He says, I don't have time. Big John's are coming. (laughs) Well, Isaiah is going to talk about a big bad man like Big John. At times, he's talking about the local Assyrian, but at other times, he's talking about this future Assyrian who's still to come. Isaiah says in verse 6, I will send him against an ungodly nation, and against the people of my wrath I will give him charge, to seize the spoil, to take the prey, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. This is a play on names. It refers to Isaiah's son. As I said last week, be glad your daddy isn't a prophet. You might get stuck with a really strange name. You remember back in chapter 8, verse 1, Isaiah gave a prophetic name to one of his sons, Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. Imagine having that name on the first day of school. It means, seize the spoil, take the prey. Well, that phrase appears in the prophecy here, verse 6. God will use the Assyrian to seize the spoils, to take the prey. He'll use an Assyrian siege to vent his wrath. Yet he does not mean so, nor does his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off not a few nations. Here's the irony. God will use the Assyrian as his tool, but this is not a truth that he himself realizes or understands or even accepts. And isn't this the plight of the nations today? Every week, news breaks that fulfills another ancient biblical prophecy. And yet, none of the current players admit the obvious. God is aligning His end-time scenario. Isaiah's point is that a sovereign God uses nations without either their consent or their explicit cooperation. Mighty nations today are mere pawns in the hand of God. Verse 8. For he says, are not my princes altogether kings? The word princes means vassals. Assyria here is bragging that the kings throughout her empire are merely puppets. They're merely, merely, merely vassals. They have no real teeth with power or power. He mentions a few of the nations that Assyria has routed that paid tribute to their conquerors. It's not Kalno like Carchemish. It's not Hamoth like Arpad. It's not Samaria like Damascus. All these nations were defeated by the Assyrians. He says, As my hand has found the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images excel those of Jerusalem and Samaria. You know, Assyria was the tool God used to judge Samaria. But in reality, her idolatry was worse than those she judged. 
Assyria's idols excelled those of the Hebrews. He says, As I have done to Samaria and her idols, shall I not do also to Jerusalem and her idols? Understand, the king of Assyria was a pluralist. He believed that all religions were created equal, that all the nations served their own idols. He never thought that he would invade a nation who served the one true, living, sovereign, almighty God. He figured that he would cut down Jerusalem's idols just as he had done Samaria's idols. There was one problem. Jerusalem didn't worship an idol. Hezekiah and Isaiah prayed to the one true God. Therefore it shall come to pass when the Lord has performed all His work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem that He will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his haughty looks. The Assyrian invasion had been a wake-up call for Jerusalem, but unlike Samaria, it was God's will to defend the holy city and to humble these Assyrians. For he says, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I am prudent. Also, I have removed the boundaries of the people and have robbed their treasuries, so I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. Assyria had literally redrawn the map of the world. Their goal was a global and an economic empire. And here they brag that they've abolished national borders and treasuries. You know, this too will be the goal of the Antichrist in the last days, a one world government and economy. Again, Assyria boasts, My hand has found like a nest the riches of the people. And as one gathers eggs that are left, I have gathered all the earth. And there was no one who moved his wing nor opened his mouth with even a peep. Until the Assyrian army invaded Judah, no nation had mounted even the mildest, the slightest resistance. They had all surrendered without a peep. He says, Shall the axe boast itself against him who chops with it? Or shall the saw exalt itself against him who saws with it? As if a rod could wield itself against those who lift it up? Or as if a shaft could lift up? As if it were not wood? In other words, the Assyrian had taken credit for victories that weren't theirs. They had robbed God of the true glory. The glory due His name. Assyria had been nothing more than an axe in the hand of God. Corey Tin Boone used to tell the story of a woodpecker pounding on a huge oak tree. One day a lightning bolt split the tree in two right down the middle. The woodpecker flew away bragging about the power in his beak. Here's the folly of proud people. There are no self-made men. There are no self-made women. Humans steal God's glory. The Lord gives us the air we breathe in our next breath. We could do nothing if He did not will it. Assyria is like an inflated balloon that's about to be popped. He says, therefore the Lord... The Lord of hosts will send leanness among His fat ones. (laughs) Some of us fat ones might view a little leanness as a blessing. Myself included. Yet God isn't proposing a diet for Judah, but an economic crash that's going to come upon these people as part of His judgment. He says, and under His glory, He will kindle a burning like the burning of a fire. And so the light of Israel shall be for a fire and His Holy One for a flame. It will burn and devour His thorns and His briars 
in one day. Now here is a picture of Messianic judgment. The light of Israel, the Holy One, are both names for the Messiah. And when Jesus returns, He will judge the future Assyrian, a.k.a. the Antichrist. Paul writes about this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. That Jesus will destroy the Antichrist with, and I quote, the breath of His mouth and the brightness of His coming. Apparently fire does the trick. Here's a clue to what John the Baptist meant when he said that Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What fire? Well, according to Isaiah, the fires of judgment. He says, and it will consume the glory of His forest and of His fruitful field, both soul and body, and they will be as when a sick man wastes away. Then the rest of the trees of His forest will be so few in number that a child may write them. The vast Assyrian army starts out as a forest. Its soldiers are as numerous as trees. In the end, it's as barren as a hill ravaged by fire. And it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as have escaped of the house of Judah will never again depend on Him who defeated them, but will depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. You see, this was Israel's problem. This was Judah's problem. They tried to strike alliances with whoever was in power. They trusted in man rather than in God. And isn't this our problem at times? We put our trust in men and not in God. This is Israel's dilemma today. Israel has looked to the United Nations. They've looked to Camp David. They've looked to all the president's men who've tried to negotiate a peace. Israel needs to trust in God, not in men. Verse 21, and the remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea, a remnant of them will return. The destruction decreed shall overflow with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a determined end in the midst of all the land. Again, God used Assyria to judge Israel, but not completely. For God always leaves a remnant of His people. You see, God's promises are eternal. Therefore, the heirs of His promises will always exist. His promises never fail. There will always be a recipient. There will always be an heir to the promise of God. Israel will be left a remnant. He goes on, Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, that is, in, Israel, in Jerusalem, in Judah, do not be afraid of the Assyrian. He shall strike you with a rod and lift up his staff against you in the manner of Egypt. For yet a very little while and the indignation will cease, as will my anger in their destruction. And the Lord of hosts shall stir up a scourge for him like the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. As his rod was on the sea, so will he lift it up in the manner of Egypt. God will destroy Assyria just as he did Egypt. You recall Moses, he raised his rod, and the Red Sea, it rolled back over Egypt's army. And likewise, in one bold stroke, the entire Assyrian army perished. This is what we read about last time in chapter 7 through 9. The Emmanuel Massacre. Remember reading about that? How that in one night, Emmanuel's sword cut down 185,000 Assyrians. 
This is why it was so surprising when the angel named Mary's baby, Emmanuel. It meant that Jesus had been here before. That Jesus was the babe who had been to battle. Unlike every other child ever born, the baby in the bassinet, Mary's bassinet, had been pre-existent. Before His incarnation, Jesus had been God's champion. He had been Emmanuel, the angel of the Lord, who slaughtered these Assyrians. He says, It shall come to pass in that day that His burden will be taken away from your shoulder and His yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be destroyed because of the anointing oil. It literally reads, the anointed one. And again, it's a reference to Messiah. Jesus was Emmanuel, the warrior who delivered Judah from Assyria's yoke. Now the rest of the chapter is Isaiah's play-by-play of Assyria's invasion of Jerusalem. They enter Judah from the north, and they close in on Jerusalem. Notice the progression. He has come to Aath. We're talking now about 30 miles north of the walls of Jerusalem. He has passed Migron at Michmash. He has attended to his equipment. Had to get gas or something, I'm not sure. Michmash is about seven and a half miles north of Jerusalem. So between Aath and Michmash, the Assyrian troops have covered 20 miles. In other words, the armies marching south at a furious pace. They have gone along the ridge. They have taken up lodging at Geba. Ramoth is afraid. Geba and Ramoth were about six miles north of Jerusalem. So again, they're getting closer. Gibeah of Saul has fled. That's four miles. Lift up your voice, O daughter of Galim. Cause it to be heard as far as Laish, O poor Anathoth. You remember Anathoth was the hometown of Jeremiah. Anathoth was only three miles outside the northern wall. Madmanah has fled. Madmanah was the site of Jerusalem's garbage dump. The inhabitants of Gebim seek refuge. Gebim was the site of a water reservoir, a cistern that uh, the citizens of Jerusalem would go to for water. Again, these were the northern suburbs of Jerusalem. Now we're talking less than a mile outside of the walls. The city of Jerusalem is now in sight of these Assyrian invaders. As yet, he will remain at Nob that day. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. And Nob is in Jerusalem. It's one of the five mountains that make up the holy city. In fact, it was the northernmost mountain. Today, Nob is called Mount Scopus. Scopus means to scope. It means to look. It was the northern lookout for the city of Jerusalem. Today, Mount Scopus still serves as an intelligence outpost for Jerusalem. It looks eastward toward the Arab countries. According to our text, this was the northern high ground that the Assyrians used to look out over the city of Jerusalem and shake their fist in threats and in anger at God's people. It's interesting, the future Assyrian, the Antichrist, will also have that same animosity toward Jerusalem. He too will shake his fist at God's people. But again, the Lord will come to Jerusalem's rescue. Notice, behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, will lop off the bow with terror. Those of high stature will be hewn down and the haughty will be humbled. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with iron. 
and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. And who is the Lord, the mighty one, who lops off Assyria like a tree limb? Isaiah 7 verse 14 identified him as Emmanuel. The name that the angel gave to Jesus. The mighty Lord Jesus cut down the Assyrians of old and He will lop off the Antichrist who's yet future. I love the imagery that Isaiah uses here for the fall of a mighty kingdom. It's like the falling of a huge tree. Recently I had some trees taken out behind my house. I had them cut down. And I just sat on the back deck with a glass of tea in my hand and watched in amazement. Those guys who take down those trees are unbelievable. First the climber, he heads up into the tree on his, with his spikes on his feet, going up the, the tree one step at a time. Then he starts lopping off branches as he goes. All that's left when he gets to the top is a naked stick of wood. And then he comes down, cutting off five foot sections and letting them drop to the ground. Man, they slap the ground hard. The house shakes. It's amazing that what was so mighty and so dominant is suddenly no more. A tree is now nothing but a stump. And you see, this was Assyria. And this is what Jesus will do to the kingdoms of this world when He returns. Chapter 11 picks up where Isaiah 10 leaves off with God's deliverer, Emmanuel. Verse 1 gives him another name. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. God's hand-picked king. He says, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Who is the branch that grew out of the roots of Jesse? None other than our Lord Jesus. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, an incredibly important chapter, it lays out the Davidic covenant. God promised David a forever king who would come from his loins. This king would sit on a forever throne and rule over a forever kingdom. When appointed, Hebrew kings were always anointed with oil. A ram's horn full of oil was poured out over their head. And thus the special king from David's family tree was known as the anointed one. In Hebrew, it's translated Mashiach or Messiah. In Greek, it's translated Christos. And in English, Christ. When we say Jesus Christ, we're saying literally Jesus the Messiah. Jesus was the branch that will grow from the tree of David. Hey, it's interesting. This is why the Gospels of Matthew and Luke begin with those seemingly boring genealogies. Hey, these ancestries are vital because they trace Jesus' pedigree back to the promises that God made to both David and to Abraham. You know, it's interesting, in 70 A.D. when the Romans burned the Jewish temple, these registries, these genealogies also went up in the flames. And thus, no one born after 70 A.D. could possibly be the Messiah because there'd be no way to prove His ancestry. So why did God allow these records to be incinerated? Well, I'll tell you why. The ancestries were no longer needed. For by 70 A.D., the Messiah had already come. Today, literally, Jesus is the only person claiming to be the Messiah who can offer the proper credentials to back up that claim. Verse 2 is a Messianic prophecy. 
The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Notice the construction of that verse. The Spirit of the Lord then followed by three couplets of two characteristics each. This verse explains a very difficult New Testament passage. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. I'll read it to you. Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before His throne and from Jesus Christ. Revelation begins with a greeting from the Trinity. The Father greets you. Jesus greets you. And the seven spirits greet you. And that's what's confusing. What do you mean the seven spirits? There's only one Holy Spirit. But this is where Isaiah 11 verse 2 sheds some light. For Isaiah is also speaking of one spirit. But this one spirit reveals himself in seven ways. He is the spirit first of the Lord. He's the spirit second of wisdom, third of understanding, fourth of counsel, fifth of might, sixth of knowledge, and seventh of the fear of the Lord. There are seven manifestations of the Holy Spirit. And thus, if we were watching a Holy Spirit highlight reel, we would see seven action segments, all one after the other. Not just one, but seven. Now, it's interesting, the menorah, or Israel's lampstand, it was a symbol of the Holy Spirit. It, too, had seven branches. One candle stood on the center, vertical shaft. Then, there were six candles at the ends of the three U-shaped branches. This is also Isaiah's configuration here in these verses. One main artery within three couplets coming thereafter. You see, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the Lord then followed by three couplets of attributes. Of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. It's interesting, Isaiah paints here a literary menorah. And notice the first description Isaiah gives to the Holy Spirit. He calls Him the Spirit of the Lord. This is so fitting. Especially since the Holy Spirit's primary job is to reveal to us Jesus. You remember John 15 verse 26. There Jesus said, The Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify of Me. This is the Holy Spirit's primary job, is to testify of Jesus. Hey, this is why there are two ways to recognize the leading of the Holy Spirit. First, since He authored the Bible, He'll never contradict the Bible. So if you stick with the Scriptures, you're going to be okay. And second, since He is the Spirit of the Lord, that means He is the Spirit of Jesus. Thus, He will never violate the nature of Jesus as revealed in the Gospels. This means that the Holy Spirit will speak and act in harmony with two things. With the written Word and with the living Word. You see, this is why charismatic groups who get preoccupied with the Holy Spirit to the exclusion of Jesus, even though they claim to be Spirit-led, are probably not. For first and foremost, the Holy Spirit leads us to Jesus. In addition, the Holy Spirit supplies us with wisdom and understanding. And oh, how we need both. You need any wisdom? 
You need any understanding? I would think so. Once there was a man, he was suffering from ringing in his ears and bulging eyes. Terrible dilemma. He sought some medical attention. The first doctor did a tonsillectomy on him. The second doctor extracted all his teeth. Neither procedure had any, did any good whatsoever. The third doctor looked at him and said, Man, you've got three months to live. I don't know what to do with you. You're going to die. You might as well go out and enjoy life. Live it up, man. And so that's what he did. He ran out, took his credit cards, ran up his credit cards on entertainment, cars, even some clothes. In fact, he'd always wanted to wear fitted shirts. And so the man hired a tailor. The tailor was measuring him when he called out, 35 sleeve, 16 collar. The man said, I don't wear a 16 collar. Taylor said, yes, you do. The man shot back, I've always worn a 15 collar. The tailor said, man, I'm warning you, you keep wearing a 15 collar and your eyes are going to pop out and you're going to have ringing in your ears. <laughs> My point being, a little wisdom, a little understanding can go a long way. Discernment improves your quality of life. And the Holy Spirit helps. He provides us practical wisdom as well as scriptural insight. Also notice, He is the Spirit of counsel and might. You recall back in Isaiah 9 verse 6, Jesus is also known as Wonderful Counselor. This means that as a believer, you've got two counselors. Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And yet it seems to me this is, today especially, this is the hidden untapped truth that has evaded many people. I mean, I mean, did you know there are more professional psychologists in the United States than librarians, than firefighters, than mail carriers? Professional counselors outnumber dentists and pharmacists combined two to one? Did you know that over half the psychologists in the world live in the United States? And yet all too often, the help they give is minimal. In some cases, it's even destructive. It reminds me of the difference between a neurotic, a psychotic, and a psychiatrist. Neurotics build air castles. Psychotics live in them, and psychiatrists collect the rent from both. I'm not suggesting that a good biblical counselor can't be a benefit. But let me just suggest, before you spend your money on one, I'd suggest you make two appointments first. With the Word of God and with the Spirit of God. Jesus and the Holy Spirit are both our wonderful counselor. Why don't you give Him a try? I think you'll be glad you did. And notice the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. That's interesting. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Where do we get this idea that the Holy Spirit is like a soft, feathered pillow? Or goosebumps? Or a tingly sensation? So, oh, the Holy Spirit came up on me. I tingled up and down my spine. Where do we get that idea that the Holy Spirit's a tingling sensation? Try to find those descriptions in the Bible and you'll strike out. The Holy Spirit strikes fear into your heart. That's His job. The Holy Spirit is the one who orchestrated the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira, that couple in Acts chapter 5 who lied and played the hypocrite. The Holy Spirit impresses on us the seriousness and the weightiness of God. 
He reminds us that God won't be played or trifled with. That God is holy. That there is no one like Him. That He deserves our utmost reverence and respect. Nowhere does the Bible say the Holy Spirit teaches us to bark or laugh uncontrollably or fall on the floor and go limp. No, the Holy Spirit teaches, us, teaches you the fear of the Lord. Verse 3 tells us His delight, that is Messiah's delight, is in the fear of the Lord. And He shall not judge by the sight of His eyes, nor decide by the hearing of His ears. Unlike humans, Jesus is never guilty of prejudicial or superficial judgments. No, He sees our thoughts and our intents. He gets right to the core of the issue. And thus with righteousness He shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of His mouth and with the breath of His lips He shall slay the wicked. Again, earlier I quoted 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Jesus will destroy the Antichrist, the man of sin. With what? With the breath of His mouth. That's what Paul says. He gets it from Isaiah. Jesus will rule the world, but He won't be elected by popular vote. He will seize the throne by force. Psalm 2 says that the lover of our soul will rule the world with a rod of iron. This is also what Isaiah envisions. Verse 5, righteousness shall be the belt of His loins and faithfulness the belt of His waist. When Jesus returns to judge the earth, righteousness and faithfulness will be Messiah's chief characteristics. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf, and the young lion, and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The hostilities between animals and man, as well as nature's predatory instincts, will come to an end. Isaiah is here describing what life will be like on the earth when Jesus returns to establish His kingdom on planet earth. A beautiful rest and innocence will again fill the earth. We're told the cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. Creation will enjoy this perfect harmony. A little child will stick his hand right in the cobra's face and the snake will refuse to strike. Revelation 20 mentions the duration of this kingdom age, this period of time in which Jesus is going to literally establish a physical kingdom on the earth. A thousand years will be its duration. During this time, Jesus will remove the instinctual aggression that God instilled in the animals before the flood. or I'm sorry, after the flood. You remember, in the post-flood world, God added meat to man's diet. Before the flood, we were all vegetarians. Probably the only good thing that came out of that. We got to eat meat. Man became a predator. So to even the score, God placed a fear of man in the hearts of the animals. Again, before the flood, there was no fear of man in, in the animals' hearts. That's how Moses was able, I mean, uh, Noah was able to round up all the animals and bring them on the ark. But after the flood, God put a fear of man in the hearts of the animals. This became a survival mechanism that kept the animals safe from man. Now Noah couldn't just walk up to little Bambi and then whip out his shotgun. There was a natural fear in the deer's heart. 
And yet in the kingdom age, this hostility is going to be put to an end. A harmony is going to take its place. Such that the baby will crawl up next to the pit bull. And they'll cuddle up together. It'll be amazing. And they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now what a glorious vision that is. In other words, everywhere you go during the kingdom age, everyone you speak to, every conversation, people will be talking about God. Everyone will know the Lord. Once a little girl prayed that God would fill her with the Holy Spirit. She said, Lord, I can't hold very much, but I can run over a lot. That's what life will be like when everyone knows Jesus. We'll all be cups sloshing over. Verse 10, and in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. The family insignia of the Jews is the root of Jesse. And yet this will become the banner for the Gentiles. You and I will all camp out under this flag. Jesus is the root of Jesse. He'll be our identity, our safety, our rallying point. I love it when people ask me, what, Sandy, what's your sign? They're expecting some sign of the zodiac. That's when I tell them, my sign is the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm not Capricorn or Sagittarius. I'm a Christian. Jesus is my banner. He is my flag. He is the one to whom I salute and pledge my allegiance. And when I see Jesus, man, I get stirred and patriotic and all emotional. I camp under the banner of the rod of Jesse. Verse 11, It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set His hand again the second time to recover the remnant of His people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea. In other words, God is going to bring back His people, Israel, from all over the world. He will set up a banner for the nations. And will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. When Jesus returns and rules the earth, Jews worldwide will regather to their ancient homeland. This is one of three parts of what we call the New Covenant. This is the covenant that Jesus instituted at the Last Supper and then ratified on the cross. This was also what God had promised Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Three things. Number one, that Israel would return to the land. Number two, that they would be regenerated spiritually by the Holy Spirit. And then three, that God's kingdom would be reestablished. Thus, the new covenant consists of return, regenerate, and reestablish. Notice here, Isaiah speaks of God bringing the people back a second time. A second time, God recovers His people and returns them to the land. You see, the first time this occurred was in 535 B.C. After the fall of Babylon, the conquering Persians allowed displaced citizens to return home. Thus, the Jews returned from Persia back to Jerusalem. When the Romans conquered Jerusalem in 70 A.D., again, the Jews were dispersed to the four corners of the earth. But this time, they never returned. And for the last 1900 years, the Jews have been scattered across the globe. They call it the Jewish diaspora. 
or the dispersion. That is, until modern times. Beginning with the Zionist movement in the 1800s, escalating with the birth of Israel in 1948, later with a wave of Russian immigration in the 1980s, we are today seeing a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. For Jews are returning to the land God gave them a second time. Did you know that in 1840, only 5,000 Jews lived in Jerusalem? In 1948, there were 84,000 Jews in Jerusalem. Today, the Jewish population of Jerusalem has grown to 570,000. In 1948, only 650,000 Jews lived within the borders of Israel. In 1982, that number had swelled to 3.2 million Jews, and today, over 6 million Jews live in the land of their patriarchs, the same number that died in the Holocaust. 6 million. You see, our generation has seen and is, and, and is seeing a biblical prophecy come true before our very eyes. Isaiah predicted, for a second time, God will bring back His people to their land. Verse 13. Also the envy of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. There will be unity in Israel. The Jews will live in peace. But they shall fly down upon the shoulder of the Philistines toward the west. Together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall lay their hand on Edom and Moab, and the people of Ammon shall obey them. When Jesus returns, Israel will conquer its foes. They'll return home triumphant over their enemies. The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the Sea of Egypt. This could be the, the Gulf of Aqaba. With His mighty wind, He shall shake His fist over the river, over the Euphrates. And He shall strike it in the seven streams and make men cross over dry shod. Apparently, when Jesus returns, miracles will occur all over the earth as Jews make their way back to Israel, back to their homeland. God will make it easier for them in numerous ways. In fact, there will be a highway for the remnant of His people who will be left from Assyria as it was for Israel in the day that He came up from the land of Egypt. A superhighway will apparently be built to allow the remaining Jews to all come home. Jesus will have a DOT, a Department of Transportation, that will make ways for the Jews to return this second time to their land. Did you know that today 57% of Jews still live outside of Israel in 19 different countries? There's still more to be done. God is still bringing His people back home to their land. Well, chapter 12 is a psalm of praise sung by the Jews who do return to their land. And so this will really be sung in the future as well as in the past. For in that day you will say, O Lord, I will praise you. Though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For Yah, the Lord, is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. Yah is a contraction for the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh. But can you hear the Jews one day singing this song? 
God is my salvation. You were angry with me, Lord, but now you comfort me. You bring me back. Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Remember in John chapter 4, Jesus met a Samaritan woman. And beside the city's ancient well, Jesus surprised her. He offered her water that bubbles up. Not from that well, but from the watering hole of God's salvation. Jesus called this water living water. I hope you know this world can never satisfy your deepest longings. Hey, try to quench a spiritual thirst with a physical thing and you'll thirst again. That's what Jesus told that woman. And yet He promised the Samaritan, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Jesus offers us an endless supply of spiritual refreshment if we keep dipping our cup in His well. And in that day you will say, Praise the Lord! You know what the Hebrew phrase praise the Lord is, don't you? Alleluia. Allel, praise, Yah. Alleluia, praise the Lord. And in that day you will say, praise the Lord, call upon His name, declare His deeds among the peoples, make mention that His name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for He has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, O inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. And hey, where can Jesus always be found? In our midst. What does Emmanuel mean? But God with us. In Matthew 18, verse 20, he says to his followers, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. In Revelation chapters 1 through 3, where do we find Jesus? He's in the midst of the lampstands, the churches. Jesus is always in our midst. Where does Jesus like to hang out? In his church, with you and me. Hebrews tells us that that He comes and He sits in the congregation of the brethren and He actually sings with us the praises of God. When we gather together in Jesus' name, He is always in our midst.